Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. Things are looking up for the Chinese economy this year following the country's COVID response shift of late. As China's 40-day-long spring festival travel rush kicks off, passenger trips during this period are expected to nearly double to reach some 2 billion times. And also, in 2021, trade between China and the BRICS countries reached uh, $490 billion US dollars. That's a whopping 40% increase with China's reopening up, will 2023 dwarf 2021? How will the BRICS New Development Bank contribute to boost trade and investment? Earlier, I talked to Leslie Marstop, Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of the New Development Bank, joining me from Cape Town in South Africa. Mr. Master, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, a little bit about the bank, of course, it was officially opened in 2015. It's headquartered in Shanghai. It was opened by BRICS countries to strengthen cooperation uh, among BRICS and, of course, other emerging economies to supplement efforts um, by other multilateral and regional financial institutions to boost global development. So um, based on the numbers that we have seen and the kind of rush into shopping malls, into scenic spots, into uh, dest um, tourist destinations, what are the signs you are feeling about the economic activity in the coming quarter, even first half of 2023? I think in general, there's been a, uh, a consensus, emerging consensus amongst international financial institutions, also the IMF and the World Bank, that uh, the growth numbers for 2023 will be adjusted upwards. I've just noticed in the last uh, 10 days or so that Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Nomura, all of these institutions have increased the projected growth for 2023 from around 4.8 to uh, 5.4, some even go as high as 5.6 and so on. So there will be a return to more robust growth in 2023. Uh, uh, this will be driven by a number of factors, but the most important lever is for the government to find measures to stimulate business and consumer confidence uh, again. There is a belief that there will be a rebound in consumer uh, confidence because of the pent-up demand from uh, 2022. However, it is important to highlight the road will be bumpy. There will still be a strain on the public health care system. There will be increased hospitalization as we work through the, the pandemic. But overall, the direction of travel is very positive because the economic momentum will return from the second quarter and certainly the uh, rest of uh, the year. So in many ways, people see two halves. First half, weaker growth, and second half, much more robust economic vitality returning. Yeah, if, if, if I may follow up there, uh, because you mentioned uh, the economic momentum will return. What makes you say that? What do you observe as to the fundamentals of the Chinese economy that, that gives you this kind of uh, uh, cautious optimism? 
I think a number of uh, uh, variables. As you know, China's uh, um, economic engine has been investment over the last couple of uh, uh, decades. That has shifted over the last number of years towards consumption. Domestic consumption has been become a, a big driver of the Chinese uh, 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 economy. So that shift from investment towards uh, consumption is a long-term uh, trend. There's also a shift away from, for example, manufacturing, which is still very core to the Chinese economy, towards more more uh, services. So this direction of travel continues. It is not something that, that will change overnight because of the current uh, crisis. And then thirdly, the, the demand in the rest of the world um, is important to, to, to focus on. China, as you know, is central to global supply chain, to the production of just about everything. China manufactures just about everything from Tesla to iPhone. Things are produced in China for Europe, for the United States, and for the rest of uh, the world. That demand is returning as many as most of the world is also coming out of the uh, COVID uh, pandemic. You're not worried about fragmentation, as some people are saying, you know, the supply chain disruptions that uh, that are more, more and more driven by some people in the United States, and also the, the global demand for, for, for exports from China also slumped. There, there will be a continuing uh, weakening in foreign uh, demand. There's expectations of a recession in Europe, much probably more milder, not as deep as what would have been anticipated before, but a mild recession will also impact on uh, China in, in, in some kind of negative uh, fashion. The most important thing to highlight is that coming out of COVID is going to be a breath of uh, fresh air and a, an, an infusion of new uh, uh, confidence in, in the domestic economy. How big of a concern is consumer confidence in your eyes? Because right out of the three years of uh, uh, dynamic zero COVID policy, um, a lot of people are simply not spending money. Of course, right now we're seeing hopefully the beginning of revenge spending. I, I would like to put it this way, but uh, um, how much time is it going to take for people to be really comfortable and confident in spending again? What is Is that a big concern to you? I think we can only draw experience from uh, the rest of the world. Um, during 2020 and 2021, when uh, China, China had a very different uh, strategy and managed to, um, I think, perform much better than the rest of the world in, in terms of containing the uh, pandemic. If you looked at what happened in Europe, in the US and uh, elsewhere, it was very swift. It was literally from one day to the next, there was a recalibration of people's approach to uh, spending uh, again, people traveling uh, again. So I think we might see the same much sharper uh, sort of rebound in consumer spending, people traveling again, people spending money. So 5.5, although nominally it looks okay, but it's actually compared to a rather low basis, isn't it? I mean, is 5.5, even if we reach that goal in 2023, is that good enough? Now it's a question of recovery. It's about a, a slower uh, a recovery, but it's important, I think, also to, to make reference to the fact that for China, it's also about the quality of growth. It's not just the nominal uh, growth that, that matters. It's very important that growth focuses on dealing with the structural issues that the Chinese economy is uh, facing, dealing with the rural-urban divide, dealing with the rising social uh, inequality, uh, improving the, the um, competitiveness in the uh, economy, uh, deepening market reforms and strengthening the role of the private sector, reforming state or enterprises, all of those things, which is part of the 2021-2025 uh, uh, five-year plan, 
all of those things will take time to implement. I think the, the, the important thing is to focus on the quality aspects of growth, especially the uh, uh, inclusive part and, and the focus on sustainability. As you might know, China has made commitments to reach net zero in terms of its green uh, path by 2050. Let's focus a little bit on the bank, of course, uh, as I mentioned in the beginning of the program, this is to supplement the multilateral, international or other regional uh, financial institutions and their efforts to boost global development. Uh, it, start, it was started by uh, five BRICS countries. Later on, it took on Bangladesh and the UAE last year. And we have two more members, which are prospective members, Egypt and Uruguay. So looking back, at the last five to six years of operation, what kind of a journey has it been in terms of both the quantity of projects that you, the bank has helped funded and the quality of the projects that you have? Has it been a steady rise that is to the expectations of the founders? The New Development Bank has gone through an exciting uh, journey. In 2015, we were a mere startup, as you have just uh, highlighted, backed up by very strong capitalization from our five BRICS uh, founding member uh, countries. Since then, we have experienced not just growth, but exponential growth. The bank went from zero to a approved project list today of $33 billion, a zero start to $33 billion of approved uh, uh, projects. These projects are spread through out China, Brazil, Russia, India, and uh, South Africa. I think the important point to highlight is that the bank has now reached what I would call more of a steady state, if you like, meaning it will not be exponential growth is what we have seen before, but we are now focused, I think, on three or maybe four key priorities. The first one is to expand the bank. It was always the ambition to create a global institution, not just five BRICS countries, to create a more emerging markets-focused institution. So you're going to see a bigger focus on expanding, bringing in more countries during 2023 and beyond. The second big focus is to deepen our focus on climate uh, and to invest more in sustainability. Improving the lives of people today is really about reducing pollution in, in, in the air. It's about you know, getting rid of coal-fired power stations and having more mm -hmm. renewable energy. In China alone, for example, we have uh, large uh, solar projects. We have offshore wind projects in the Fujian uh, province. Uh, we are looking at the, the energy efficiency and in, in improving the lives of people through greater focus on uh, climate uh, change. The third area is also focusing more on financing our activities in local currency. In China, for example, we finance half of all of our activities in renminbi. The advantage mm -hmm. of that is that we do not have the exchange rate risk because if you if countries borrow in US dollars, if your currency depreciates, you have to pay back substantially more in uh, interest payments. So what is the point? Yeah, what is the people would ask? What is the point of having a new development bank, uh, a regional group or, or a multilateral financial institution when you have the IMF, when you have Chinese development banks, of course, when you have the AIIB? What kind of relationship, what kind of difference is the new development bank making? I think. Uh three things. The first one is that we are much more focused on emerging markets. All of the institutions or many of the institutions you've just mentioned are global in character, with the exception of obviously China Development uh, Bank, which is much more focused on China with some international activities. We're focused on the particular needs of, of emerging markets. Emerging markets constitute the biggest uh, growth engines of the world uh, today, where the biggest, uh, the biggest requirement for additional financial uh, resources. We work in a complementary 
monetary fashion with the World Bank, with the Africa Development Bank, with Asia Development Bank. We are not trying to replace or to compete with. There is a massive demand for new financial resources for development, for new investment in education, in healthcare, and, and so on. So we were started to amplify and to, to bring the, the emerging markets to give them greater focus and uh, priority. Well, BRICS economy definitely very important. 40% of the global population, 16 to 18% of global trade and a quarter of global GDP. That's that's roughly the, the importance of uh, BRICS countries. Now, uh, again, coming back to the economic situation we're talking about, looking ahead for the year 2023, uh, what kind of impact will global economic uncertainty have on the BRICS economies and as a result on your operations, if there is a link at all? I think it's important to mention that, you know, infrastructure, which is what we invest in, we finance infrastructure, we build ports and rail and power and, and, and infrastructure that is part of the productive base of, of an economy. And that happens whether the economy goes through cycles of, you know, um, boom, bust. We are in a much more challenging global uh, environment. There's also geopolitical uh, uh, tensions uh, uh, globally. There is um, a crisis around energy insecurity, food insecurity globally that is affecting all of our emerging uh, markets. In many ways, it validates the importance of the new development bank and, and development banks in uh, general, because there's more requirement for the kind of investments that we uh, make. And finally, in one word, if you can, how would you describe uh, the kind of role China has played as the host country of the bank, because the headquarters is in China? We have, if you um, uh, not uh, seen it yet, a um, magnificent uh, headquarters in uh, Pudong, uh, a three-story uh, building, which the host country, which China has uh, provided uh, for us. We're hoping this year and going forward to, uh, uh, if you like, use this building really as a hub for international institutions in uh, China. This uh, um, building, the, the headquarters of the bank, is one of the greenest buildings in all of China. It has platinum environmental um, sort of standards in terms of the energy efficiency and all the, the sort of latest technologies that have been introduced. So um, we have as an international institution, we are one of the only ones headquartered in uh, 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 Shanghai. We have only had the best of experiences uh, living there. Thank you very much, Leslie Marstop, Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of the New Development Bank, joining me from Cape Town, South Africa. Leslie Marstob, uh, the uh, Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of the New Development Bank. We'll take a short break and when we come back, I'll be talking to a Brazilian expert on China, Evandro Cavallo. Stay with us. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. <laughs> we then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world. Twenty-five hundred years ago, an old man rode on his buffalo and headed west of China. Before he vanished into the wild, he left behind a book of 5,000 words, 
which for the next two and a half millennia would have shaped the Chinese way of thinking. Subscribe to the sayings of Lao Tzu and find out why generals with wisdom yield after winning the ultimate battle and how staying behind just might help you get ahead of others. The sayings of Lao Tzu is available on all major podcast platforms. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. Having lived in China for several years, Kamalo witnessed major economic and social changes in China. What impressed him the most? Where is China heading and why does the West get China wrong very often? Earlier, I talked to Evandro Cavallo, head of the Center for Brazil-China Studies at the Getulio Vargas Foundation School of Law in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. He was joining me from Buenos Aires, Argentina. How much do you understand the um, governance style and uh, thoughts on governance of President Xi? Because you spent a couple of years in China, you saw China with your own eyes, you delved into Chinese political science and practices on different levels. What do you think makes China tick? And why do you think China and Brazil and other emerging countries together will bring great stability to the world in a time of uh, much uncertainty. I lived in China for three years in my life, 2013 to 2015. And since then, I have made frequent uh, trips to the country to take part in its seminars or etc. Uh, interrupt, of course, due to the pandemic, naturally. Uh, but uh, uh, since those times, uh, those years in, in China have been follow, following developments in Chinese society. And undoubtedly, the elimination of the extreme poverty is the main one, you know, achievement uh, got by the Chinese government. And this fact, which is the realization of a historic commitment by the Communist Party of China, demonstrates the success of the Chinese political system and also of the Chinese nation. And I think that the world uh, needs to be more open to understanding China and learning from China as well, just as China has striven to understand the world and learn from it. And uh, if I say an example, in the, at the end of the uh, 70 decades, China's stage of economic development was similar to the economic and social reality of the Brazilian Northeast at that time. Both were poor, you know, and uh, in just over 40 years, China has become the second largest economic power. And uh, China should serve as an inspiration, I believe, for the Brazilian Northeast especially, and I have been very insistent on this here in Brazil when I talk with my colleagues, mainly because I'm from Recife, the capital of Pernambuco. Pernambuco is one of the provinces or states of the northeast of Brazil. So mm -hmm. the combination, you know, between the Chinese political system and also, uh, of course, the Chinese wisdom, the Chinese approach, the Chinese culture, all of this is part of the development of this, the, 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 the development of the, the economy of China and also the society. This is the 
all of this contribute uh, to uh, to make China the second, you know, economic power in the world, uh, and probably in the years, in the, the near future, will be the number one. Hopefully, um, if people listen to you, they a lot of people they probably feel that they're listening to they're in a completely different world because if they switch to other international channels, they most likely will hear a completely different story. China is doing this wrong. China is doing that wrong. Um, China is a threat that China needs to be countered. The U.S. Congress just, you know, set up a bipartisan committee to find the fundamental source to keep the U.S. edge over China, so on and so forth. Basically, you know, China is evil and stuff like that. Um, why is there such a huge gap? And what are you going to tell to those people who have been immersed in a Western narrative about China, especially about the political system, to help them understand China a little bit better? Yes, so first, there is a huge uh, lack of understanding about what China is. And the West all the time try to say to the world, uh, um, what China should be, sub like this, you know, and not understand what China is. And I think the world needs to understand China as it is, the reality of China, considering the Chinese culture as well. But uh, of course, there is a, uh, you know, uh, competition in the world, right? And uh, uh, and the. The Cold War mind is also something that create obstacle to understand China as well. So we need to understand China, considering the history of China is so large. The history of China, not only you know the 20th century and the Cold War mind to understand the country. Any specific suggestions you can give to the people of Brazil who may be interested in China, but who have yet to have the opportunity to understand it better? Uh, I think the first step is, you know, uh, know, read more about China, know the Chinese people, uh, establish this connection, friendship, uh, because this is important. There are a lot of uh, aspects of the Chinese culture that is very interesting to all the world. And this is what I suggest to all people here in Brazil, you know, try to avoid the fake news, try to avoid only, uh, you know, uh, Cold War uh, perception what, of the world. What What would be a practical, what would be an example of an entry point into the Chinese world of culture from your personal experience? What got you into the Chinese world of culture? You mean uh, an example? A poem, a movie, a okay. dish, a song. <laughs> there are a know. lot of Something things. Something that the Brazilian people yeah. can relate to easily. What worked for you? Okay. I think, of course, when we... Nowadays, we have a lot of uh, Chinese movies. Very interesting, you know. And not only based on the the dy dynastic era, but also contemporary China. This is a way uh, to know more, especially contemporary China. Uh, there are a lot of, you know, information in movies, even in some platforms on the internet. And the people here, they can 
and they have access of these movies. First, mm -hmm. I think this is important to know more. Second, and uh, try to, to go beyond the stereotype. This is also a, a one important thing. Uh, for example, the Chinese culture is very sophisticated. When we look, when we consider, for example, the uh, the food, you know, the cuisine, Chinese cuisine is very sophisticated, very very elegant as well, and very tasty. And there are several kinds of dishes in, in China. You know, if you if you taste the 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 Beijing uh, food or Shanghai or Yunnan. You know, uh, uh, Xinjiang food as well. So a lot of uh, there, there is a huge diversity of uh, the foods, you know, and 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 the cuisine in in China. So and uh, the music as well. The contemporary Chinese music is also beautiful. You know, uh, when I was uh, when I lived in China, I attend some jazz festivals and also rock festivals, and it's very interesting. And uh, the people here in Brazil, they have no idea, you know, how beautiful and interesting and uh, and uh, evolved is the, the, the Chinese art. Well, definitely, I hope through our work, I mean, my work and work like by people such as you, um, there will be more understanding about China and vice versa, so that the people would understand each other better. We're going to leave it there. Many thanks, Dr. Evandro Cavallo, Professor of International Law, Head of the Center for Brazil-China Studies of the um, Getúlio Vargas Foundation or FGV School of Law in Rio de Janeiro. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mrs. Liu. That was Evandro Cavallo. With that, we come to the end of uh, this edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin, coming to you from Beijing. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Liu Xin in Beijing. You've got the point. Dunhuang, situated along the ancient Silk Road, where fine arts and divine beliefs merged with the natural world. It's where the East and West interacted, and where the world's largest Buddhist art gallery still fascinates and amazes people today. A place where stories of life and death, love and hatred, passion and desire, faith and sacrifice have been generated and told for 2,000 years. Buckle up for our new podcast, Why We Love Dunhuang, the one and only podcast that can take you to the fantasy world of Dunhuang and beyond through our audio tour. Listen and subscribe for free on major podcast platforms. Why We Love Dunhuang? You will have your answers.